You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. Yes, the no group think zone is back here at the conservative conscience. Thank you all for tuning in. It is Friday, February 22nd. We all love Fridays. Fridays are awesome because it is just one more day till full family time. When I get out of this insanity of really, you know, not just the liberal media, but as I often say, the conservative media, uh, it's just funny watching conservatives all over the place talking about how, oh, this jihadi bride, Hoda Musafa, whatever her name is, Muthana, uh, how she really is an American citizen. Oh, no, you don't understand. She might have, the father might no longer have been a diplomat. And, you know, j- just to, um, really finish off some some of the discussion we had in yesterday's show about applying really timely first principles to the current issues, how there's so much confusion even from conservative media on what we should believe in. It, it just astounds me. P- part of the problem is, to, to make this clear, that a lot of people in the conservative media have this sort of one-directional, unbalanced obsession with individual rights. Now, that might sound a little bit weird coming from me. Well, Danny, what, what, what do you mean? You don't like individual rights. I mean, that's, that's We love individual rights. You know what I mean? I mean, there's no balance. They, they don't understand that rights are not infinite. You have to get them just right. Rights have to be gotten right. You can't add on to rights. And, you know, we're always into, oh, I don't want government to take away someone's citizenship or not give someone citizenship. Well, I mean, the, the problem is when you add rights that don't exist, you steal the sovereignty of the whole of the nation. The security problems. Now, I'm not saying if, if you have a legitimate right, you could just look at, you know, national security and say, hey, you know, screw the right. Believe me, I'm not like that, but we've we've gone the other way, and, and there's this like obsessive libertarianism that was divorced from really what libertarians used to be, and certainly traditional conservatives. It's, it's just a big problem I'm seeing, so much confusion, and I'm telling you, it literally comes out in amazingly absurd, an amazingly absurd outcome according to these dudes. What, what sort of outcome would come out? Well, it would come out that if you're here as a diplomat in good standing, okay, you're a diplomat in good standing, your wife is pregnant, she's about to have a kid. Well, yeah, everyone agrees that kid is born here. It's not a citizen because, well... Even according to the great English common law that these people evidently believe we're adopting at a time when the very crafters of the 14th Amendment said we were getting rid of English common law. They agree that the kid is not a citizen, of course. Okay. 
Let's say a month later, the wife is almost about to give birth. It turns out your nation that you're representing here is committing acts of terrorism or whatever, and we recall or not recall, we we expel the diplomats. So you have to get out. And then right at that moment, so you're no longer a diplomat, right? You're here, oh, but I'm on your soil and I'm no longer a diplomat. So the kid's an American citizen because an illegal, I mean, an illegal is a citizen where a child of a diplomat's not. I mean, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It's it's just unbelievable, the stupidity of this. And look, like I've said before, like I've said before, those of you who are familiar with my book, familiar with my writings, this is not new, but I want to just read this again from page 32 of my book, Describing Rights. President Calvin Coolidge noted in his July 4th 1926 speech commemorating the 150th anniversary of the declaration that although the founders knew that times and technology would change and progress, the ideals expressed in this document were to be interminable. In his own words, quote, if all men are created equal, that is final. If they are endowed with unalienable rights, that is final. If governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, ahem, that is final. No advance, no progress can be made beyond these propositions. If anyone wishes to deny their truth or their soundness, the only direction in which he can proceed historically is not forward, but backward toward the time when there was no equality, no rights of the individual, no rule of the people. Those who wish to proceed in that direction cannot lay claim to progress. They are reactionary. Their ideas are not more modern, but more ancient than those of the Revolutionary Fathers. And then that's end quote. Now, this is me. What Coolidge was noting is that unlike the shallow-minded, bleeding-heartedness of the left, the spectrum of liberty is not an infinite straight line. It's a bell curve. You have to get it just right and freeze it at the peak. That peak was established by the Declaration of Independence, ratified by the Constitution despite the gaping hole of slavery, and repaired by the 14th Amendment in 1868. Any attempt to, quote, expand rights and liberty runs off the cliff of Liberty Mountain toward the backside of Tyranny Slope. Granting super rights to protected classes necessarily leads to the infringement of basic rights of every other citizen. As John Quincy Adams once said, this is a land not of privileges but of equal rights. Privileges are granted by European sovereigns to particular class of individuals for purposes of general policy, but the general impression here is that privileges granted to one denomination of people can very seldom be discriminated from erosions of the rights of others. For example, and this is me talking again, for example, with the creation of a fundamental right to gay marriage, a concept that never existed until 15 years ago, individuals are now suffering from the loss of their religious liberty, private property rights, and livelihood, our most foundational and unchangeable rights. By granting illegal aliens rights to be released into the country, service with education, healthcare, and citizenship for their children, all at taxpayer expense, the courts are infringing on the liberty and property rights of the American citizen, not to mention the very essence of the social contract and consent-based popular sovereignty, the foundation preamble of our founding. So that's the point here. There's this growing trend. If you look at the Supreme Court, again, just to tie up some of the thoughts that we spoke about yesterday, If you look at what's going on with the Supreme Court, there's cool rights. 
oh, cruel and unusual punishment, excessive fines, all the stuff dealing with criminals. And again, don't get me wrong. I'm not making fun out of the baseline that's in the Constitution. They're important. Um, and we have to follow them to the extent that they are what's mandated by the Constitution, not add-ons. But what's funny is, like, it's only those things that they'll care about. But when it comes to the Second Amendment, when it comes to pro- property and conscience rights, no, 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 no. There's no sudden alacrity to guard those. But everyone agrees. Everyone's like, oh, rights, rights. Oh, yeah, strip citizenship. Uh. But it's like this stuff is novel. This stuff is totally novel that you can go over and commit treason even if you're an American citizen and you wouldn't have been viewed as expatriating yourself. But this notion that you could just come as a diplomat and then have a grace period where you didn't get out of the country and you have a kid and then you could retroactively come and litigate yourself with this status and say, well, uh, the kid – well, uh, what? Are you kidding me? You're stealing from everyone. You're, you're denuding the entire nation the right to determine who will join their society. I mean there's no greater foundational value of the governance by the consent of the governed than that. But that I just want to mention that that's what you're seeing with the trend. They're turning very libertarian in the courts, but not in the areas where we need it. It's all dealing with criminals or illegals and this and that. And again, sometimes with criminals, American criminals, it's it's you know demanded by the Constitution, but they add on to it, and we create more problems. So I just wanted to get that point out, and just to uh, tie up a couple of loose ends on. Um, birthright citizenship and i know it's kind of you know it's a big pet peeve of mine and whenever it comes up in the news uh, i just can't control myself from from uh just expounding upon the entire issue because i just think it's so so important um one thing that people don't realize is so again Those of you who understand this issue, who have listened to my podcast, who have read my book, you understand that there is no way in this world you could say that the Constitution mandates citizenship for people who come here against our will. That could never, ever happen. What they do is they have a super Amelia Bedelia interpretation of one aspect and ignore 10 other more foundational aspects of the Constitution and Declaration to, to to rule against the citizenry. This is what they always do. And our people, um, you know, our people understand the problem, but conservative media is totally out to lunch on this. But anyway, that's where we are. Really pisses me off with that. So back to uh, this issue here. I'm trying to pull this up. I can't remember uh, where I found this. But I want to quote to you, and, and I, I apologize if this is something that's repeated. I might have said this at the time last fall when this where, – where is this? This was a big issue when – all right, I, I'll, I'll find it in a minute. Anyway – Chester Arthur directly addressed the question of the 14th Amendment. Well, he didn't directly address it, but what he said directly addresses it. So as you well understand, 
if you look at the text of the Wong Kim Ark decision, which was whacked out for a million reasons, he is he says explicitly that your child is an American citizen only if you are domiciled here and have permission to be here. Okay? So there's no way you could apply that to temporary non-immigrant visas, and there's no way you could apply that to illegal aliens, period. Anything less than that is a travesty, and we need a movement. If we had a movement behind Trump and bolstering him on this issue, we would totally defeat the other side on it. But 99% of phony conservative asshats support it. So that's the problem. And you know when I say conservative, you know exactly what I mean. I don't mean a real conservative, but that's the whole problem. We, we've lost sight of what it means to be a conservative. Be, be conservative at all. But it's a step further than that. The Constitution wasn't even mandating birthright citizenship for all children of legal immigrants. Now, generally, as a matter of policy, not legal mandate, constitutional mandate, matter of policy, you know, I, we all want that. You know, generally, if you're an immigrant that we choose to let in on an immigrant visa, I have no problem having automatic citizenship for a kid born here. But the notion that the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, was denuding Congress from ever regulating the parameters of that is absolutely absurd. And there's about 15 reasons for that, and I've discussed most of them in the past, and I don't have the time to go over them all today. But what I will say, if you go back to our podcast, you know, if you look at Omni or Blaze or uh, iTunes, Stitcher, you just go back in order, it would have been around November 1st, maybe November 1st, November 2nd. There were two shows in a row, maybe two and a half shows I did on this issue. So um, you, know, you can go back and hear that for a more comprehensive view on this. But the, the point is that you always need a probationary period. The whole understanding was this goes back to our founding, the, the debates at the Constitutional Convention, the debates on our first naturalization laws, Naturalization Act of 1790, 1795, where it was very clear, you know, it was a debate over how many years, five, 10, 12, seven, how many years they wanted, but everyone wanted a certain probationary period where you couldn't just come and it's like, hey, you're a citizen. We have to be able to see that you're a man in good moral standing. You're someone that we want consensually to admit to our society. And again, that's the core of the Declaration of Independence. It's the core of governance by the consent of the governed. It's a natural right of the whole of the people of a society that's formed. Now, if you're going to tell me that during that probationary period, that from the second you're admitted, not as a citizen, but in that probationary period, boom. You drop a kid, your wife's eight months pregnant, you give birth, we're, we're saddled with that kid. It makes no sense. Meaning, it's not as egregious as a legal immigration where you downright, we had no way of preventing you from coming. Here we did admit you, but it's the same principle that you can never denude from a nation you can never denude from a nation that ability to vet. 
Now, obviously, once we vet you and we determine to give you citizenship, we never know what a kid's going to turn out. But it's the same way, you know, Native Americans living here, non-immigrants, we don't know how your kid's going to turn out, but that that's natural. You're a citizen, your kid's a citizen. But if you're an alien, you don't have a right to be here. Right? I mean, everyone agrees that. To the minute you're officially naturalized, we could deport you. Okay, Congress could regulate any reasons to deport you. Clarence Thomas actually has an interesting view that, uh, or at least he has hinted to it, that it could be even the president has inherent power to deport aliens. Certainly, we've always said a president has the power to exclude people from coming here. The question is, if they're already here, could you deport them? Um, could a president deport them without Congress, without statute? But either way, a nation through their elected representatives has the right to deport you. So it's kind of weird that what? So you drop a kid, so now, now the kid's here against our will? And that's this problem here with all these people, these jihadi babies. And... It makes no sense. So if you understand our founding, okay, if you understand the way our founding was, basically, there was a process for many years. It's still that way to a certain extent. There was a two-step process. It was all about swearing off allegiance. That first, you had to swear off allegiance. Okay, so you're 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 an alien, and then when you're ready, right? So, and when you're an alien, you're considered an alien, even a legal immigrant. But you're considered an alien. You're not considered an American. You're considered a foreign national. But here, here's where it gets tricky. In those days, see, ironically, we have people dual citizens. They fight for other countries. They do this for other countries. They go and fight for our enemies, and we still treat them like Americans. The irony is they believed back then, by definition, it was mutually exclusive. It was a seesaw. You could only be one, either an American or a foreign national. If you haven't sworn off allegiance yet, you're not an American. If you did swear off allegiance, you are an American, and you can't have allegiance to anyone else. And if we see you having allegiance to someone else, then you're not an American anymore. That's how it was. So they had a two-step process you know, now we kind of view it as like, okay, there's temporary visa, there's illegal immigrants, then there's a green card, an LPR, a legal permanent resident, and then naturalization. But there were really two steps of LPR. There was, okay, you're, you're a regular alien, and then there was a middle step where you declare your intent to naturalize. I want to become an American, and you actually would swear off allegiance. Now, you weren't naturalized then. You weren't naturalized then, okay? But... Y- because again, then you first declare your intent, and then we declare whether we want to accept you. And that took several more years. Okay? This is, this is very important. Very important to understanding the birthright citizenship debate. And understanding the terminology that was used by the framers of the 14th Amendment when explaining what born in America and subject to the jurisdiction thereof meant. The framers, Jacob Howard and what's his name? President Grant's attorney general in the first legal legal memo explaining section one of of, uh, Amendment 14 
1873, they used the word allegiance. Okay? They used the word allegiance. It's very important to understanding this. They constantly use that. Someone who is a citizen in all ways, um, they always focused on that term allegiance. Why was allegiance so important? It was a term of art that they were referring to. Okay? It wasn't randomly used words. These were very important terms that were used to describe different you know, states of being. And um, basically, they were defining this stage of being where you declared your intent to naturalize. You would always find, and you found this even in Justice Gray's own ruling in Wong Kim Ark. No, not Wong Kim Ark, but six years prior. I mean, his entire life, he said the opposite. This person is as if they're not on their soil. They are not here pursuant to law. They have not taken any steps to naturalize. What does taking steps to naturalize mean? Meaning, you know, did you naturalize or not? What's taking steps? So there was this middle stage that people don't understand or, or a lot of people are unaware of. And that's what everyone was referring to at that time. And I think it sheds a lot of light on what truly was the intent of the word subject to the jurisdiction thereof. Right, Senator Jacob Howard of Michigan, the principal author of the, of the Citizenship Clause, he said that anyone you know, who, who will be a, citizenship, a citizen upon birth he explained it that they're born here. And how did he explain the language? And he said, and not owe allegiance to any uh, other authority. He called it, quote, a full and complete jurisdiction. The same jurisdiction and extent and quality as applies to every citizen of the United States now. Now, you'll say, well, what does that mean? You're either an alien or a citizen. What does he mean a child of an alien who's here with complete jurisdiction and a subject to jurisdiction, the extent that a citizen has? Well, what does that mean? But again, he explained further. Well, no, let me just say, I'll tell you what he means. Because it's in our law, you know, laws to this day. You have to swear an oath to absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign state. Think about it. We're applying this to illegals that have no right to be here or temporary visas or people that find a way to like litigate themselves into some sort of status, but then they go back to their country and they fight for terrorism, this and that. It's absolutely, you have to have sworn absolute to abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign state. That's what it means. The citizenship oath has that verbiage and it's been used since our founding. Abjure all allegiance. 
Therefore, when the framers of the 14th Amendment spoke of full and complete jurisdiction, the same jurisdiction and extent and qualities applies to every citizen of the United States now, and, quote, not owing allegiance to anybody else. Not owing allegiance to anybody else. They were clearly defining a legal permanent resident who is prepared to become a citizen. That second stage. But that state of being is not definitive in the Constitution. Okay? It's not definitive in the Constitution. That is subject to Congress's regulation. When Congress considers you to be that sort of alien, you could say it's some tranche before the actual click of naturalization. But how much before? We don't know. Congress could 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 say, okay, you have to declare you have to you you get a green card, then you have to declare your intent, and then there's another 20 years from your declaration of intent of that oath until you make the second oath when you're naturalized. Right? They could do whatever they want. In other words, it was subject to Congress's regulation. What type of aliens did we feel reached the stage of full allegiance, not owing allegiance to anyone else? It's certainly not illegals and temporary visas, but what is it? It's regulated by Congress. Right? I mean, this, 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 is, this is what it is, and that's why the first 14th Amendment case in Slaughterhouse in 1872, Justice Samuel Miller wrote in his opinion that the main purpose of the Establishment Clause was to grant citizenship to the Negro, quote, and that the phrase subject to its jurisdiction was intended to exclude from its operation children of ministers, councils, and citizens or subjects of foreign states born within the United States. It was to exclude them. Meaning you couldn't be a – meaning if you would have asked the founders – and I'm not, I'm not saying I'm trying to impose that today. I'm just saying if you would have asked them then, which is we're trying to glean the original intent of the 14th Amendment, they would have told you that dual citizens would be excluded. If you're a dual citizen, your kid's a foreigner because you're not a real American then because they couldn't believe in dual, dual citizen citizenship. But certainly when you're a full citizen of a foreign country going there, fighting there, voting there, as a lot of them do, and you're just an LPR here, no, that's subject to congressional regulation. And then certainly an illegal is absurd. And that's why, again, in 1873, Attorney General George Henry Williams who, by the way, was part of that Reconstruction Committee that drafted the 14th Amendment before he became Attorney General. He was in the Senate. He said, quote, the word jurisdiction must be understood to mean absolute and complete jurisdiction such as the United States had over its citizens before the adoption of this amendment. Not just, oh, if you're here, you could be prosecuted if you run a, run a red light. Like some of these idiots like to say, like, well, oh, it's anyone who is subject to our laws. You're here. You're so No. Aliens, among whom are persons born here and naturalized abroad, dwelling or being in this country, are subject to the jurisdiction of the United States only to a limited extent. So all these speculative things, is maybe it only means a limited extent. It doesn't mean a citizen. It means a little like you're subject to our laws. We could prosecute you. No. He says that blatantly. No one's going to tell you this stuff. 
But anyway, that's the importance there. That's the, now we can understand. You know, um, in Nishimura Aiku, Justice Gray, six years before Wan Kim Ark, wrote the following. It is not within the province of the judiciary to order that foreigners who have never been naturalized, look at the stages, never been naturalized, nor acquired any domicile or residence within the United States, nor even been admitted into the country pursuant to law, shall be permitted to enter in opposition to the constitutional and lawful measures of, of the legislative and executive branches of the national government. And again, and, and I didn't mean to... <laughs> I knew this would happen to me once I start on this. I'm just going to go off, and I'm sorry. I've I've other things to get to. I'll, I'll, I'll you know we'll get to that shortly. But just to close up shop here, the court said in Minor v. Happerset in 1874, again that same era, in the context of citizenship, it explained the symbiotic reciprocal relationship between a citizen citizen and the government of the civil society, allegiance and protection. Okay, they they work together. Wong Kim Ark, Justice Gray himself said that birthright citizenship was limited to children, quote, of resident aliens who are, quote, under the allegiance and under the protection of the country. So allegiance and protection are, are reciprocal. And Minor V. Hepper said it explained, quote, each one of the persons associated becomes a member of the nation formed by the association. He owes it allegiance and is entitled to its protection. Allegiance and protection are, in this connection, reciprocal obligations. The one is a compensation for the other, allegiance for protection and protection for allegiance. So if you don't have allegiance, meaning we didn't offer it to you and you didn't swear it, and certainly you're demonstrating allegiance to another country, you don't get the protection. You certainly don't get the citizenship. So let me first read to you our naturalization law that was in place at that time. It was modified a little bit, some of the years and details, but the fundamentals were still in place during the 14th Amendment. This was from January 29th, 1795. Here's the bill. Um, and and I, I don't want to read the whole thing here. Let me just... Uh, Read, where is this here? So, any alien being a free white person may be admitted to become a citizen of the United States or any of them on the following conditions and not otherwise. So, here's the process. First, he shall have declared... On oath or affirmation before the Supreme Superior District or Circuit Court of some of one of the states or of the territories northwest or south of the River of Ohio or a circuit or district court of the United States three years at least before his admission, right? There was a declaration before that admission that it was bona fide his intention to become a citizen of the United States and to renounce forever all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, um, uh, state or sovereignty or whatever, and particularly by name, the prince, potentate state or sovereignty whereof such alien may at that time be a citizen or subject. You have to swear it off. So that's, that's first of all, I, I never understood dual citizenship. Meaning, I understand natural born dual citizenship, meaning you're natural born here, and then based on your parents, another country throws it at you. You don't have to um, swear it off. It might be a nice thing to do if you want to, but 
But if you're naturalizing, meaning you're an alien and you're becoming naturalized, you have to take that oath. So it's a lie of your oath if you're not swearing it off. And certainly if you actually take the act to vote in a foreign election, I never understood that. It, like, it, it's amazing. It's like anything we want to do, it's like we're breaking the law. We're violating people's rights. When this is our right, this is our heritage, this is our history, this is our constitution. Anyway, secondly, he shall at the time of his application to be admitted, this is three years later, declare an oath or affirmation before some one of the courts aforesaid that he has resided within the United States five years at least. Okay? And he does absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance of Delhi to any farm prince, yada, yada. Okay? Then thirdly, the court admitting such alien shall be satisfied that he has resided within the limits and under the jurisdiction of the United States five years, and it shall further appear to their satisfaction that during that time he has behaved as a man of good moral character, attached to the principles of the Constitution of the United States, and well deposed to the good order and happiness of the, of the same. Fourthly, in case the alien of applying to be admitted to citizenship shall have been born any hereditary title, yada yada, um, he has to actually, you have to renounce your nobility. We didn't want any of that noble stuff. Okay, that was section one of an immigrant himself naturalizing, right? So notice you have to be here five years. So if you do the math, you had to, the declaration had to be three years before. And then you had to be here a total of five. So at a minimum, you needed two years between the intent to declare and your admission to becoming a citizen. At a minimum, it had to be two years by definition if you had made the declaration of intent immediately when you started living here. But notice that's what it was. Swearing off allegiance wasn't until you took that oath. If you didn't take an oath, see, nowadays you only really have one oath that we make. So that's the thing. You don't even have anything before. Because it changes. It's changed throughout our history, the naturalization process, the stages of LPR, what we want to do. But at that time, there was a two-step process. I'm telling you, that's what they were referring to when they talked about allegiance and declaration of intent and being an alien who's subject to our jurisdiction just like a citizen because you swore off allegiance. So I swore off my protection from my foreign sovereign and now I'm an American. I just, you know, but even then you're not an American fully because no, the people need to watch you and see if you're in good moral character and then you come back a couple years later, we'll decide whether we want to let you in. The notion you could shove a kid on us on that, that time, that would be absurd. Now again, as a matter of practice, Kids being born at the time, if you are white, we would give it to you. But it certainly wasn't out of reach of congressional regulation. And there are some things that were kind of unclear, and I'm going to get to that in a minute when I get to Chester Arthur. We're too big into this to, to, to swap horses now, so I want to finish the thought. Section 2 of the Naturalization Law of 1795 provided always and be it further enacted that any alien now residing within the limits and under the jurisdiction of the United States may be admitted to become a citizen on his declaring an oath or affirmation 
okay, yada, yada, this is a guy natural naturalizing and, you know, he properly goes through it. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That just explains the oath. Section two has no bearings. Section three, section three is the next thing. Okay. And be it further enacted that the children of persons duly naturalized dwelling within the United States and being under the age of 21 years at the time of such naturalization and the children of citizens of the United States born out of the limits and jurisdiction of the United States shall be considered as citizens of the United States. So this is the hereditary provision. This is the provision of passing on citizenship that if you have a minor child, which in this case was defined as under 21 years of old of age, you know, when you apply your minor kids, so to speak, are applying with you. Okay. Right there. They come along with you. They have to be dwelling in the United States during that time. Notice we don't mention anything about, well, what if I'm born here? Congress never defined that because that, that was up to, common practice, which could have, of the states, which could have always been regulated by the feds. There was no birthright citizenship. There was none. And the 14th Amendment never touched that. The parameters of, you know, when you have kids being either born or they're born overseas, but they're minors while you're going through the process. The parameters were always subject to change of how much allegiance we felt you had and how strict we wanted to be. There were times, you know, we got stricter again in 1798 with the French Revolution and the whole, you know, Alien Sedition Acts. Then Jeffersonians pulled it back a little bit in 1802, went back and forth the, the amount of years you needed. Um, but the principles were still always the same. With that, I want to read to you a very eerie passage from Chester Arthur's final State of the Union address in 1844, 1884, which was the same year that the Wilkins case was decided. And that case was the first case that was very clear that there's no birthright citizenship. That was the case that was overturned inexplicably in Wong Kim Ark. And that was also the same year that Justice Gray was appointed to the court by Chester Arthur. Now, there's a lot of funny things with Chester Arthur. As you well know, when you had the growth of the birthers with Obama, you would often hear references to Chester Arthur. So there were always these theories. You know, He was officially born in Vermont right over the border, you know, uh, in, in Vermont, and there were those that speculate he was really born in Canada. Okay, I, I have no under knowledge of that, and my understanding is that, that that's not true. He was born here. But what is true is that his father, his mother was an American. His father was an, an immigrant from, from Scotland. And in those days, the citizenship went after your father, not your mother, um, today, you know, it's ambidextrous. Our laws became fully ambidextrous in the 1930s in terms of passing down citizenship, inheriting citizenship. 
Um, but it was it was just the father. And his father never became an American. His father declared his intent. I'm trying to see if I can get this right. Um, his father declared his intent to naturalize. So he he was at that stage. He hit that stage. He so at some point he took that oath. He took that oath. And I believe it was right before Chester Arthur was born. Okay? Right before Chester Arthur was born. And it, he was born in 1829, Chester Arthur. It was, it was, it might have been a few years before. I, I don't have the exact date on me. It was sometime before then that his father declared his intent. Now, his father never, to my knowledge, never became an American citizen. I don't know why. I don't know why he never acted on it. I don't, I don't know what the deal was. So you can't say that Chester Arthur became an, was an American, you know, certainly from the naturalization process. I mean, he was born here, but, you know, because his father wasn't naturalized. So it wasn't derivative, derivative naturalization from his father because his father wasn't naturalized. So you'd say, well, you know, he was born here. Um, and his father declared a debt. Now, certainly, if you're an alien, long-time resident, that your father was here and he already declared his intent and you're born, certainly, as a matter of practice, our government always, to any white European at that time, we always gave out citizenship. And obviously, he was a, given citizenship by birth. But there's somewhat of a question, well, okay, are you natural born? You're automatic at birth. Are you natural born? And that's a question does natural born mean automatic at birth or is it some sort of term of art meaning natural law, meaning that you're guaranteed and it's not subject to congressional regulation? I'm not getting involved in that kind of revisionist doubts of Chester Arthur's qualifications and you know whatever. Certainly that would cast aspersions on anyone who's a child of an, born a child of an LPR like, like a Marco Rubio if he wants to become president. I'm not getting into that. But... I want you to under to to with this background, and I didn't mean to take this long, but I think I, I think it's um really worthwhile for us to have gone through this little preface in order to understand what Chester Arthur eerily and randomly said in his final State of the Union address. Quote, the prompt and thorough treatment of this question is one which intimately concerns the national honor. Our existing naturalization laws also need revision. Those sections relating to persons residing within the limits of the United States in 1795 and 1798 have now only a historical interest. Section 2172, recognizing the citizenship of children of naturalized parents, is ambiguous in its terms and partly obsolete. There are special provisions of law favoring the naturalization of those who serve in the army or in merchant vessels, while no similar privileges are granted to those who serve in the Navy or Marine Corps. Okay, right? So he's talking about that. You know, it needs to be updated, the parameters. Then he says, quote, in a uniform rule of naturalization, 
such as the Constitution contemplates, should, among other things, clearly define the status of persons born within the United States subject to a foreign power and of minor children of fathers who have declared their intention to become citizens but have failed to perfect their naturalization. It might be wise to provide for a central bureau of registry wherein should be filed authenticated transcripts of every record of naturalization in the several federal and state courts and to make provisions also for the vacant vacation or cancellation of such record in cases where fraud has been practiced upon the court by the applicant himself or where he had renounced or forfeited his acquired citizenship. By the way, you just, you see right there, you could renounce or forfeit it, meaning that we take it away from you for doing something wrong. Anyway, a just and uniform law in this respect would strengthen the hands of the government in protecting its citizens abroad and would pave the way for conclusion of treaties and naturalization with foreign countries. I'm not, look, I'm not trying to be creepy on you. I'm just telling you, these are facts I'm telling you. He is literally describing his situation. It's unbelievable. Persons born within the United States, they're born on the soil to a foreign power, a subject of a foreign power, meaning an alien, or a minor child of fathers declaring their intention to become citizens, but have failed to perfect their naturalization. What is the status of that person? Now, let me ask you a question. This was 17 years after the 14th Amendment was ratified. What is he talking about? A child born on our soil, even to a legal permanent resident who declared his intent to become a citizen? Right, That's the highest level before a citizen. Forget about a regular uh, legal. Forget about an, an illegal, which you certainly had at, in the 1880s by that point because you had federal immigration laws. He's, he's casting doubt, meaning the premise of what he's saying is that that is not governed by a mandatory floor of the Constitution, but is subject to changing regulations of Congress. And over time, it became ambiguous, the terms of it. And he wanted to say, like, what happens if your father never goes through with it? That is very eerie. Now, was he could now obviously he was a citizen because we made him a citizen, and based on the laws at the time, not the constitution, but the laws, it's a very important distinction. He, of course, was a citizen at birth, but there are some questions like, you know, is that automatic? I mean, because maybe he was suggesting it could be if you declared your intent already for that level of an LPR, maybe your kid is natural born. Maybe not. And he couldn't be president. I don't know. There's stories that he, and I think they're true, that he burned all of his documents before he died. I don't, that's not my point. But what I do know is it is incontrovertibly clear Tracing the history of our naturalization laws, the terminology we used, the terminology described by the crafters of the 14th Amendment, the Attorney General of Grant, the first two court cases after that, Justice Gray's entire body of work before 1898, and Chester Arthur's own comments. 
that before Wong Kim Ark, nobody in their right mind would tell you that a non-citizen who has a kid, that the parameters of that kid being a citizenship are outside of Congress's ability to regulate. Nobody would have told you that. And like I've said so many times, certainly even after Wong Kim Ark, nobody would have applied that to illegal immigrants and children of those here on temporary visas. All right, so that's what that. Um, just wanted to lay that out. Um, I'm sorry I went long, but I, I just felt a need to get that out. I don't know if I said that point clearly during previous episodes, but bookmark this episode because this is very important. And also consider this really part two of yesterday's episode. So if some of you skip around, you know, hear one episode, not another, you really need to hear yesterday's show. That's episode 358. This is 359. This is really part two to how even most of the conservative legal scholars, political commentators have accepted basic erroneous premises of the left while pretending to be conservative. Nowhere is this more evident than with this birthright citizenship nonsense. So we're we're going to watch this case with this jihadi bride and many more that are likely to come. Look, it might even trigger a birthright citizenship debate. Again, my view is no matter what, this person was a diplomat or if it was after his diplomacy ended, he's still here only on a um, diplomatic visa. Unless you're going to tell me he overstayed it and he's an illegal alien and somehow that gives him more power than a diplomat, which just makes no sense. But that might trigger a court case. But I'll be honest with you, aside from Clarence Thomas, maybe Justice Alito, I don't have very good um, confidence here. Um, I don't know the fact that she's from Alabama. She's not really from there, but was living there. Uh that's the 11th Circuit. I don't know. It depends on what type of judges you get there. It's hit or miss there. We'll see what happens. Also, just another interesting theme. Yesterday, we talked about how so many of our people are so obsessed with defending themselves against the left. Like, oh, I'm not a racist. No, no, no. I'm, I'm more into the intersectionality Olympics than you are. I'm more into the identity than you are. That we, We've kind of lost our way on this whole issue. Um, and I think nowhere is this more evident. I forgot to mention this yesterday. Joni Ernst, her popularity in Iowa has now surged to 58%. She is a rhino from the pit of you know what. She is a leftist on every issue. Very problematic. But it's all about identity. Oh, she's a me too now. And, you know, conservatives feel bad. Oh, she, she said she had abuse and whatever. And look, I don't mean to make fun of that, but I've heard a lot of things from there, a lot of people that would know that there's a lot more than meets the eye there. But again, it's not being driven that she's a warrior for conservatism because she's a warrior for the left. It's all the identity and the package and the story. I mean, this is what we've become. It's just so disappointing. A lot of other things to talk about. Uh, and, and we're going to have to save a lot of this for next week. And I'm sorry I took up so much time, but Ron DeSantis how about running Ron DeSantis for president? You know, I was thinking in 2024, but I'm thinking maybe 2020 because MAGA is more than just a slogan. Our survival depends upon it. And maybe we need someone who will actually implement things. Look at what a doer is. I'm proud to have endorsed him when he originally ran for Congress, became friends with him. We had him on the show talking about policy entrepreneurship, what he was running for. You look at how he talks about judicial supremacism and all the stuff he's doing there in Florida. He just announced he's going to force E-Verify in Florida. That is very significant because 
Every Florida Republican I've known until now, look at Rick Scott, because of the demographic issues, they try to ingratiate themselves to the identity politics. He has not backed down at all. And by the way, you know, when we had this birthright citizenship debate in the fall, when both of them were locked in close races, Rick Scott going from governor to running for Senate, and then Ron DeSantis, who's congressman running for governor, they were asked about it. Rick Scott said, oh, no, 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 it's law, settled law. These people need citizenship. And um, Ron DeSantis said, no, you know, they're, it's, uh, it's ridiculous that illegals should get birthright citizenship. So this is a man to watch. I'm going to try to get him back on the show now that he's governor. Um, but you know, there's there's a lot of lessons to learn from him. We'll we'll get to that another another time. Another big story you might have missed. This is from the Daily Mail. Murder is up fifty five percent in New York City for this far. Um, you know, meaning from January first through whenever a couple days ago in February in New York. 21% surge in murder. I'm sorry, 55% surge in murder, 21% surge in rape. Now look, it's only first number of weeks of the year. could level out. Numbers show that from the start of 2019 through Sunday, there have been 48 grisly murders in New York City compared to just 31 in the same seven-week period in 2018. Uh, let's see where else we are. Look at this. Interesting. They say it mainly comes from northern Brooklyn, northern Queens. The number of shootings in general are on the rise as well. Non-fatal shootings have increased by 69% as 22% have been shot this year compared to just 13. 22 people have been shot compared to just 13 last year. Um, I thought you're not allowed to carry a gun there. Hmm, I wonder where you get a gun. Interesting. And uh, rapes have risen too. There have been 239 reported rapes around the city, 21% more than the 198 reported last year in the seven-week time frame. Um, here, here's the deal. And I want to talk to my buddy, retired top official in NYPD about this, but... Here's what bothers me. Why is it that when it comes to everything, we have to wait until a problem is just insane levels to understand a trend, that there's something going on, that yes, crime has been down for over two decades, but we're, we, we, there are signs that we're reversing it. Well, Daniel, it's still relatively low to, well, yeah, but do we want to completely erase the gains since the early 90s? There's no question in my mind that the amalgamation of letting out all the drug traffickers, all the 50 million ways we're reversing the tough on crime regime of the last few decades and going back the other way with interest is going to have its effect. Certainly transnational crimes and illegal aliens commit to that, contribute to that, much more than is being reported. But once again, there's no conservative vision on that issue. They're all bought into this business. That's a big deal because New York was the symbol of you know the Giuliani era reversing the inexorable rise in crime for three decades, four decades before that. It's the same thing with the border. I'm going to have out, we're going to link to in show notes. 
I've said this all before, but I put it in one article, the definitive data and analysis piece of why qualitatively and quantitatively this is the worst border surge ever. It's the worst border surge in family units in credible fear and all the problems that that does when they surrender themselves, the number of children coming, the fiscal drain, the strategic decoy that it creates for the cartels. We explain it all. In straight-up graphs and numbers, the media will not show you. But do we need to wait until every measure is worse than ever before? Ten times worse? How bad do things have to get before we adapt to a situation? That's what really bothers me. You know, yeah, there are some areas of the border where it's still relatively low. Spoke to a sheriff in Valverde County which is really West Texas. It's already well out there in Del Rio. So yeah, he's like, yeah, it still hasn't, the wave hasn't hit him yet, but it's gradually moving West in Texas. It's all the way up to Eagle Pass, you know, from where it traditionally was just in the Rio Grande Valley. Now it's moved into New Mexico from, from the other side of the country. Yuma and Tucson, Pima and Yuma counties are terrible. Cochise County is better. But do we have to wait I mean, it, it just it just really bothers me. So that's a whole other thing. Lots of trends going on. There's a lot of news also with this illegal alien murderer in Napa County, California, Javier Hernandez Morales, who was arrested several times since his last removal from Mexico in 2010. There were ICE detainers on him, and he was not, not given over to um to uh the, to to ice classic example classic example um i, I i'm sorry i said he he murdered no he didn't it was an attempted murder he almost killed a cop Shot at her point blank range. Thankfully, he was pretty bad with guns. But um, this dude was deported twice in 2007 and once in 2010. Then when he came back, he was arrested. Guess what? Driving under the influence, battery on a peace officer, selling liquor to a minor, probation violations, all the while never turned over to ICE. And none of that stuff is going to go into the crime statistics of illegal aliens because we don't track most of those crimes in uniform crime data. We don't track that. This is what's so ridiculous. But again, this is the symbiotic relationship between interior enforcement and border enforcement. See... If every single time an illegal comes into contact with law enforcement, they're immediately thrown out of the country, you would avoid all of this crime. And then if you had border security, where you had beefed up military presence, and then you had fencing, see the fencing, as you well know, in my view, won't stop the migrants, but at least will stop the criminal elements. Because this is a classic example. How did this guy get back in the country three other times? Well, I'll tell you, unlike some of the asylum seekers, he doesn't. He, he's not going to surrender himself to a border agent because he'll know they'll pull up his records in three seconds. He'll be in big trouble. So 
what he's going to do is the cartels are going to use the migrants as a decoy to bring in a guy like that. He's going to have to pay them more. He'll pay 10000 while the others pay 4000 That's another way how the Central American migration, even the ones who themselves aren't criminals, just public charges and bring in diseases and destroying our culture, pretty tall order, but they're helping strategically because if you didn't have them tying down the border agents, then they could catch these people. That is another aspect of this the media is not telling you. And Trump needs to make that case better. Very, very important point here. That's why Yuma, the Yuma sector CBP pointed out yesterday that in two separate incidents, while the, the agents were tied down processing 25 Guatemalans, Guess what? They found several human smugglers come in with firearms. Now, if you're coming in with firearms, it's pretty bad news. My buddy Jason Jones, when I sent him the story, he told me a couple things. Number one, it is very hard to have a gun in Mexico. The, the federales will clamp down on you. You're not allowed to have a gun. If you're walking in openly with a gun, you're a cartel member. It was the only people doing it. And then he found, he showed me on one of the guns, it had an insignia and then diamond-shaped, you know, they're very into their branding, this diamond-shaped stuff on the um, polymer grip of the, it looks like it was a Glock, not a subcompact, I think it looked like a regular compact Glock, um, either 9mm or 40 cal, and they had these diamond markings, and he said, that is a cartel gun. Because he, what he told me is, so Yuma CBP announced that they sent out the Special Operations Division. And he said, wait a minute, Daniel. They don't send out SOD for just to chase down a run-of-the-mill human smuggler. And usually you don't have a human smuggler who carries a gun if they're not protecting something big. Either they're very high value or drug load. So there's something more that CBP is not telling us. I asked them for comment. They did not comment, of course, because CBP will not cooperate. Um, but anyway, that's what comes in while the, this ties us down. So you can't just focus on the sheer numbers. It's the quality of the numbers. See, if everyone's just trying to get away, okay, so the agents are just fully in battle mode. But if you have hundreds of Central Americans surrendering for asylum at a time, tying them up with everything from feminine hygiene and birthing and formula diapers. I mean, I'm not kidding. You heard what Sheriff Wilmot said on our show a couple of weeks ago. And then certainly the processing, the cartels do that on purpose. And that's when they bring in people like this, the really bad dudes. So in this case, Yuma caught the guy. But whenever you hear all these stories and this murderer was in the country, uh, was 10 times deported. Well, how did he get back? That's how he gets back. This is the big lie. There's a lot more I want to analyze from that piece next week. But um, anyway, we've gone long. Thanks for another great week here. Thanks for your encouragement. Keep sending me your notes at dharowitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at conservative. Enjoy your weekend. God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 